The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gary Belsky. Uh, He is the author of a book called Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes and How to Correct Them, Lessons from the Life-Changing Science of Behavioral Economics. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thank you. My mom says it's a fantastic book. I would agree with you, indeed. Uh, Before we get into the book, just tell people a bit about your background and how you came to write this book originally, and then you've revised it as well. Yeah, well, uh, you and I met where I first uh, became interested in this field. For many years, I was a writer at Money Magazine, a staff writer there, and also a minor television personality. Uh, like yourself, although you were a, you were a major television personality. I was uh, I wrote about personal finance and business and economics. I've been a reporter and journalist in that field for a long time. And in about 1995, I wrote a cover story about this science, which very few people had known about. Actually, there was an editor at at Money who was familiar with it because he had been working at a science magazine. And the field was called behavioral economics, and essentially it was the psychology of decision making. Um, it was a field that was pretty much created by a couple of Israeli psychologists. And the reason they were interested in financial decision-making was really because it was kind of the easiest way to write formulas and to measure people's attitudes towards risk and uncertainty. That is, how do people act, how do people decide when they don't know the outcome and something is at stake? So we took this scientific findings, which had never really been talked about in the general press, and I wrote a cover story called The Eight Biggest Money Mistakes. And, it, you know, it was a perfectly fine story, and I, I liked it, and it got, some good, it got some good response. And shortly after it was published, this was in the mid-'90s, I got a call from, the, from, an, from an editor at a book publishing company who asked me if I thought that there was a book in the topic. And I remember at the time we went to lunch, and I said, oh, no, I wrote 3,000 words. That's more than enough on the whole topic. And she goes, well, why don't you think about it a little bit, because maybe there's something more to it. And, of course, I ended up writing a 75,000-word book, and there's been about, I would say, it's safe to say there's been 100 books written about the topic for a general audience since then. Um, and uh, so there was, there was a lot more to say, but that's where I first became involved in the field. It's a very good field. It's a fascinating field because it really explains not just about financial decision-making, but it explains, in general, how people make choices when it comes to resources. And the resources could be money, but it could also be time or emotion or effort. Essentially, it explains how people make judgments and how they choose when it comes to almost every aspect of life. That's why the field has become so, so popular. And then after money and after doing this book, you went to ESPN. Just tell us briefly about when you went from money to sports and what that was like. Yeah, I made a switch. The truth of the matter was there was a lot about this field, about behavioral economics, when I wrote the book and researched it, that I realized that a lot of the advice back then that people were giving about personal finance, especially stock picking, 
made me a little bit nervous because I thought that it wasn't always in the best interest of people uh, based on how their psychology might work, based on what we know about about decision-making. And so I thought, well, I wanted to keep writing about this stuff, but I wanted to write about it on the side, and I needed to do something full-time. And right at that moment, ESPN was launching a magazine, and uh, I was hired as an editor there. I switched from writing to editing full-time during the day. And as a result, uh, I kind of I went from one area of interest in which people are obsessed by statistics, which is personal finance, to another area of interest in which people are obsessed by statistics, which is sports. And I ended up doing, you know, and the magazine that ESPN started did quite well, and I, I did okay, too. I ended up becoming eventually editor-in-chief of, of ESPN the magazine and also ESPN uh, Insider, which was uh, ESPN's paid content website. And, and I was at, at ESPN for 15 years, but throughout that entire time, I continued to write and to lecture uh, about this field. I give a lot of speeches around the world about decision-making and choice and uh, various aspects of psychology that are related to the field of behavioral economics. And then you left ESPN the magazine to form your own company called Eland Road Partners. Just tell us briefly about that. Oh, so well, one of my partners at ESPN and I, we formed, uh, we formed Ellen Road. It's basically a content consultancy. That is, a lot of media companies are looking for help in coming up with ideas for TV shows, for magazines, for websites, for social media feeds. And a lot of non-media companies are looking to become media companies. They're looking to figure out ways to talk to their customers or to their partners or to other people. And so we do consulting on that level. People come. People hire us, and my partner and I and some of our other people who work with us, we come in and we solve, you know, communications problems is probably the best way to, to describe it. And we do it in, in video, in digital, in print. We will do TV shows. We will do websites. Whatever people need, we will try to solve the problem. And, again, the website to find out more about that would be elandroadpartners.com, right? Exactly, E-L-L-A-N-D, Road Partners. Very good. All right, so let's get to the book. Now, at the beginning, you, you talk about uh, why smart people make big money mistakes. Let's, as an overall kind of view, why is it that people who have good educations, you think they're perfectly rational, get into these situations where they're continually making uh, big, as you call them, big money mistakes? Well, you can blame it on, on uh, evolution if you want to. And it, by the way, it doesn't really matter whether or not you believe that evolution took place over the course of billions of years or over the course of thousands of years. But I think everybody would agree that there was a time where human brains were evolving, where they were developing. And the way that the human brain evolved, the way that it developed, was to solve a particular kind of problem at a particular uh, time in the world. So our brains evolved to solve problems of resources and scarcity. Our brains evolved to, to solve problems of danger, immediate danger, short-term danger, things of that nature. And as a result, we are very we, we were very good at staying alive and getting stronger and fitter and faster. But for most of us, these um, the, these evolutionary or these kind of developmental traits, um, you know can get in the way when you're trying to solve much more complex world problems. That is, the world is not nearly as simple today as it was um, when we were all on the savannah or living in jungles or living in deserts or whatever the case may be. There, but one of the people who founded this field, uh, uh, an Israeli psychologist named Danny Kahneman, 
and his partner, who was named uh, Amos Tversky, Kahneman, by the way, as you know, Jordan, won the Nobel Prize for this work. And right. his, partner, his partner died before they gave out the Nobel Prize, so obviously he didn't, he didn't win anything. But what they, theorized, what they basically theorized was this idea of two different systems in our brain. There's something called System 1, which is slow and, uh, and intuitive. It's the deep part inside. I mean, it's quick and intuitive. It's the deep part inside our brain, the one that is responsible for fight or flight. You know, it's the one that when you hear a roar, you immediately say, uh-oh, I may have to run. There could be a lion there. And then there's a second system that evolved later on in human development, which is called System 2. And System 2 is slower and much more analytical. And for the most part, you know, we, we, we think that we use System 2 to make most of our decisions now. When we're looking at and when we're investing in stocks, which is a very complicated concept, or when we're buying insurance, or when we're deciding what job we want to take, or where we want to move, or how much to sell our house for, we would like to think that we are using System 2 to figure that out, right? Because these are very complicated decisions. What Common and Tversky realized was we may think we're using System 2, but we are often using System 1. We are often reacting on a non-conscious level to clues and to stimulus and to factors that we're not even aware of that make us choose or form a judgment that is not necessarily logical but feels right deep in our bones, if that makes any sense. So it's an emotion overriding analysis, basically. Yeah, well, and the funny thing is, but when people, it's emotion overriding analysis, but the funny thing is people always talk about people behaving irrationally. It's not so irrational, it's just obsolete, right? A lot of the clues, a lot of the ways that we think now when it comes to complicated ideas feel irrational, except that they weren't irrational, uh, you know, 100,000 years ago. They would have been perfectly logical things to, to think and to do, but when you're operating now, it's not nearly as, doesn't seem so, so, so rational because the world seems to be a much different place. So you have a lot of different ways that people make wrong financial decisions. And one of your first ones, you say that not all dollars are created equal. Why don't you give me an example of what you mean by that? And what mistake does that cause people to make? Well, this is, um, the, it's very good. It's, it's very smart that you started with this because it's one of the basic bedrock principles of the field, which is that we tend to treat dollars differently. And that the meaning, depending on where the money comes from or where we keep it or the size of the transaction. So, for example, a very famous bit of research in this field is if you ask people, and we'll ask your audience right now, if you ask people um, if they were shopping for a shirt and they're at a store at Walmart, let's say, and the store is selling the shirt for $50, but the salesperson very helpful. They're always helpful at Walmart. Mentions that the store that the that the uh, that the shirt is on sale for twenty five dollars, half off, five blocks away. And if you ask, if you present most people with that situation, and you ask them, would you walk five blocks to buy the shirt at half price? Most people will say yes, absolutely. But if you go to those same people and you tell them that they're buying a suit for five hundred dollars, and the salesperson tells them that the suit is on sale five blocks away. For $475, would you walk five blocks to buy the suit for $475 instead? A very small percentage say yes. And what's interesting about that is it's the same exact question, right? In the first right. question, you are asked, do you want to walk five blocks to save $25? In the second question, you're also being asked, would you walk 
five blocks to save $25. But we tend to think of that $25 differently because it's part of $475 or $500 than we do when we think about it as being part of $50. And that's normal. It feels right even when you say it out loud. But the fact of the matter is the $25 that you'll be saving is the same $25 regardless, right? It was like we all grew up probably with parents who were – my dad was had five children. He was a school teacher. He was very concerned about saving money on groceries. and But oftentimes he would drive 20 miles to save a few cents on – cans of, of green beans. We, we ate very healthy when I was younger, at least canned healthy. And he was probably spending more money on gas than he was saving when he was going grocery shopping. But it, it right makes them there. feel better, yes. So it what is the way, is, is this something you should combat and, and really think that all dollars are equal? Or is it something well, you just have to kind of give into? Well, it depends. It, it can be, you know, like, like a lot of these kinds of trades, it can be useful sometimes. So, for example, there are some people who have, a, who have a hard time saving any money, right? They just spend whatever is in their account. But if they mentally account for some money as, let's say, down payment money or money for the kids' college education, just because, the, because they're able to label it differently, they, they manage to stay away from it. So that's a very good um, trade. And so you don't want to... Stop doing in those cases. On the other hand, when people get a tax refund, they will often be much more likely to spend it than they will if they got the same amount of money as a bonus from work or if they just realized that they had a thousand extra dollars in their bank account. And the fact of the matter is that when you get bonus money like that, you shouldn't think of it as bonus money. The minute it's your money, it's your money. And it's just because Uncle Sam gave it back to you as a refund doesn't mean that it, it, it should be easier to spend. One of the things we always tell people is whenever they get, it's hard to tell people don't spend gift money because it feels like, well, wait a second, it's, you know, that takes away all the fun. So what we always advise people is don't spend gift money, don't spend refund money, don't spend bonus money immediately. Tell yourself you can spend all of it in a month. And what happens is when you put money in a, in a checking account or a savings account for a month, about a month later you start to think, it's just savings. It's no longer bonus money. And so yeah. that's a good way to get over it. So you have to address it depending on the situation, but you need to know that, you're, that you are prone to this kind of bias. Does that make any sense? It does indeed. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Gary Belsky, who's written a book called Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes and How to Correct Them. You can get the book at Amazon.com. We'll be back after this. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. 
you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gary Belsky. Uh, he's a financial writer, and he helps uh, companies with their content strategy and ex- execution uh, with a company called Eland Road Partners. Uh, his book is called Why Smart Money Make Big Money Mistakes and How to Correct Them. Welcome back to the show, Gary. Thank you. Glad to be here. So um, you, you say that small amounts of money can really add up, and you say a dollar here, a dollar there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. What can people do to kind of take control so these dollars don't kind of slip out of their hands and they, they actually can save and invest some of this money. Well, one of the things we tell people is that you have to pick your spots. What you, our book, uh, you know, which is, it's been translated into about 20 languages. It's been selling consistently for 15 years. So something about it resonates. And what I think resonates about the book is that we try to be practical. And we're trying to help people make decisions, not just that uh, save the money or earn the money, but that actually uh, increase their happiness, which is ultimately what, money should do and what decision-making should do. It should make you a happier individual. And one of the ways we tell people is that you have to pick your spots. You can't decide that you're going to become a computing machine or a personal finance perfection machine. You have to decide where it is that you have problems and how you might go about fixing it. What I mean by that is some people are very good at counting pennies and watching their dollars, and yet they get sloppy when they are buying, making big transactions. You know, for example, I tell a story in the book uh, about myself before I discovered the field, which was that I had a car and I was thinking about buying a stereo. And I remember I just kept going, it was a used car. And I remember pricing out stereos at the time. And I was, you know, I didn't want to spend more than $300, right? And then uh, very shortly after that, my car broke down and I bought a new car. And the new car at the time cost like $23,000, something like that. And I remember while I was uh, picking all the options for the car, I agreed to an $800 stereo. And the reason I agreed to an $800 stereo was because I was doing something called integrating losses. That is, even though $800 was a lot for a stereo, I kept I was able to tell myself, oh, what's the difference? It's part of $23,000. And the, yes. the, the, the irony of that is that I was financing it. So as you know, Jordan, it was costing me more than $800 because I was <laughs> right. interest on it over three years. And so I'm a person who can, you know, I, I have to be more aware of, of the places where I'm, where I'm prone to make mistakes. My, my, my general feeling for most people is that your life is much more enjoyable when you can fix one or two big things and not worry about the small things, even though small things can add up. So I like to have people worry about, you know, big ticket items. I make people just do things like, you know, wait one or two days before they make a purchase online. I, I, I say, just put it on a post note and put it on your desk and tell yourself you can buy it tomorrow. And almost always people tell me that when they're online shopping and they'd use that trick the next day, 
they, they decided, oh, I didn't, I didn't really need it. It was an impulse buy, or it would have been an impulse buy. So I like to look at particular tricks and just pick my spots so that I don't become really annoying and the person who goes out to dinner with friends and adds up and decides who, who got the broccoli and nobody wants to go out to dinner with me anymore. <laughs> yeah, the impulse will pass in my case. All right, one of your other principles is uh, when you say when six of one doesn't, uh, isn't half a dozen of another. So again, it's kind of money's different the way you look well, at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. These are all mental accounting. These are all, I think, from the from the second chapter of the book. It's, these are all, or these are all um, uh, mental accounting tricks. Meaning, like that people tend to treat money differently depending on its source, depending on where they keep it, depending on how they spend it. And you just have to be aware that um, that it's. It's all the same money to you, right? It's it, it, no matter where you get it from, no matter how you spend it, it can equal the same the same purchasing and, and buying power, and that's the thing that people have a hard time getting past. In the investment area, you have, you talk about something called the disposition effect. Why don't you explain what that is and how you could maybe be a better investor understanding that? Well, the disposition effect is that people there's a there's a very curious phenomenon that happens when people. Um, when people buy and sell stocks for their own accounts, which is that on average, and this is extraordinary, and you know this from, from decades in the personal finance world, on average, people tend to sell their winning stocks and hold on to their losing stocks. That is, people tend to, to the stocks they sell, when, they, when people have studied this, when researchers have studied this, the stocks that people sell tend to outperform the stocks or the investments that they held on to over the next year by about three percentage points, which, as you know, is an extraordinarily large amount. And the reason for this is something called the disposition effect, or which is part of a bigger concept, the one that won uh, Danny Kahneman, the Nobel Prize, called loss aversion, which is that people basically are so uh, averse to losing money that when they have to sell a stock or sell an investment, they will do anything they can to avoid selling a losing investment because they hope, this is not everybody, but most people, they, are, they hope against hope that the money will come back, that the stock price will bounce back. So imagine two people who bought $10,000 worth of stock A and $10,000 worth of stock B. And then two years later, stock A is worth $15,000, good for them, and stock B is worth $5,000, cut in half, Right. Now imagine that person has to sell some stock in order to pay a bill of $5,000. Most people in that situation, Jordan, will sell $5,000 of stock A. They'll sell $5,000 of their $15,000 stock rather than selling all of their stock B, which is now down to $5,000. And it's funny because basically they're selling their good stock and holding on to their bad stock. But the reason they do that is because of the disposition effect. They so don't want to recognize that that money is gone for good that they hold on to the stock hoping it'll come back. But, of course, it's a little bit like holding, selling your seaworthy boats and holding on to your leaky ones because you're hoping the leaky ones will seal themselves. That's yes. the disposition effect. <laughs> okay. So the, the advice there, should you put in stop-loss orders to prevent – since it's so well, difficult one, for people to step. That, that's certainly one piece of advice. But for people who don't, who don't even know what a stop-loss order is, I always suggest something else. First of all, as you know, you know I'm, I'm a big believer in index funds and people being passive investors unless they really think they can pay attention enough or, you know, to their stocks and to their mutual funds and to their bonds 
in order to compete with Warren Buffett, right? It's like nobody thinks they can compete with Kobe Bryant by practicing basketball for a few hours a week. I'm not sure why anybody thinks they can compete with Bill Miller or with Warren Buffett by practicing stock picking or bond picking a few hours a week. But if people, um, what I always tell people to ask is when they, when they are looking at, especially at losing investments, is to ask themselves the question, which is, would you buy that investment today at the price it's selling at? And, of course, when you ask most people that question, they respond with, absolutely not. They, they often hate that stock or they hate that mutual fund. And the reason uh, why I ask that question is because when people look at it that way, they can, you can then respond to them or they can then tell themselves, well, okay, every day that you don't get rid of that losing investment, you're basically buying it again without the transaction cost. You're basically you're not paying commission. But if I have $5,000 in a really crappy stock, pardon my language, or a really bad mutual fund, I could either sell it, eat my losses, and then invest it somewhere smart, or I can hold on to it because I'm desperate that it'll come back. But every day I'm making that decision is me reinvesting my money in a really uh, unattractive investment. And when you tell people that, they start to be able to get over their loss aversion. They get over the disposition effect because they realize, I don't want to invest this money again and again and again in this stock that you know has disappointed me. Then they can move on. But they have to get over their loss aversion. It's the most, one of the most powerful uh, and the most um, pervasive of all the financial or decision-making biases is loss aversion. People will do anything to avoid a loss or avoid confronting a loss or making it permanent. By the way, it's been I, you know, amazing the last few years. I mean, we had these huge losses back in 2008, and a exactly. lot of people are still very cautious about investing at all, even though we've had this enormous bull market, because they're worried that could happen again. They're not kind of looking oh, at where no, things I'm are now. Glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that. You teed me up for something. There's another, later in the book, we talk about something called the recency bias, which is the tendency that people have to overreact to the most recent or the loudest news, even though it's not necessarily the most important news. Well, I always tell a story whenever I give speeches about when I first came to New York, I worked for a magazine called Cranes New York Business, and it was right after the stock market crashed. I was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and we put out a special issue that week. And as part of my reporting, I ended up talking to a, a, a money manager who, at the time, was he was probably about 15, I was probably about 25. And aside from being a good source, he was a very good teacher. And he, when, I remember I was talking to him on the phone, this is before email, and he, at one point during this week, when everything was going crazy, he said, let me ask you, he was trying to teach me something, and he said, guess how many clients I have? And of course, I had no idea, and I guessed the number, he said, wrong. I have 180 clients. And I said, okay. And he goes, guess how many of them called me over the past two days to tell me, guess how many of them called me over the past two days? Remember, this was one of the great stock market crashes in 1987. And I, may, I guessed the number and I was wrong. And he said, no, 150 of my 180 clients called me. And I was like, wow. And he goes, guess how many of them asked me to sell stock because the market was crashing, if you remember. And I said, I guessed the number. And he said, no. Out of the 150, 148 of them called me to tell me to sell all or part of their stock. And I went like, huh. And then he asked me the strangest question. And you'll be able to answer it, Jordan, I predict. But he said, guess how old the other two were who called Older. me to tell me to buy? And I said, I didn't, I don't know. I was young then. I go, I don't know. He goes, both of them were over 80. Right. And I, <laughs> I listened to it and I paused because I didn't know what it meant. And then he said to me, they've seen this before. 
Right. They know that stock markets fall sometimes, and they know that everybody starts selling like crazy, and they know that they want to ensure that their grandchildren are going to be rich because they want to buy at cheap prices, right? And right. so it was a great lesson. Without explaining, without knowing that that was an example of the recency bias, that's what was going on. People were overreacting to all the news of the stock market of stock prices falling, when anybody can tell you that in history, that's what stock prices do. They go up and down, up and down, but over a long period of time, they go up as long as you believe that that humanity is increasing its productivity and going on to bigger and better things. And so that's an example of a bias that people are so nervous about losses, they get so anxious that in the short term, they can overreact. And what you and I tell people all the time is, look, Stock market is very is very risky short term. So if you need the money next year, or even I always tell people, I don't know what you tell them, Jordan. I tell them five years. If you need money in five years, it shouldn't even be in the stock market at all. It should be yeah. in a bank account, or it should be in a CD. It should be in something like that. But if you're looking to grow your money long term, five years or beyond, then you could be in the stock market, and you don't care if the stock prices fall because you can buy more stocks. Right. No, I remember the crash of 87 well, and people thought the depression was coming the next week, and there were all these stories about people selling apples on the street and how this was the end of the world, and everybody was panicking, and it was turned out to be totally not, not that at all. Uh, Jordan, uh, yes, when I worked for ESPN at the time, it was owned by the Walt Disney Corporation. In January, I think, of 2009, a few months after the stock market started to really fall, Disney stock was selling at 16 or $17, and it dropped from, like, $34 to $17. You know where it is now? About 65 later, or something like that, yeah. It's above, it's above 70 Turns out yeah. people didn't want to stop having fun. Right, <laughs> absolutely. All right, we have to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Gary Belsky. Uh, his book is called Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes. A uh, website to find him is elandroadpartners.com. We'll be back after this. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gary Belsky. Uh, he is the author of a book called Why Smart Money, Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes. Uh, his website today is elandroadpartners.com. Welcome back to the show, Gary. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm enjoying it. So one of the things you talk about in the book is what's called the sunken cost fallacy. Uh, so maybe describe what that is and how people can combat it a bit. Yeah, it's a great, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, bias. It's a really interesting habit that people have uh, because it applies not just to their financial decision-making but to all decision-making. Um, basically, the sunk cost fallacy is the idea that we pay too much attention to investments that we've already made and can't get back. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a big problem because we shouldn't pay attention to them at all. Once money is spent, it's gone for good, and yet people have a hard time getting over it. If you think about it, it makes a lot of sense when you go back to what we were talking about in the first segment of the show, which is that a lot of these uh, rules of thumb that we have in our head, a lot of the ways in which we approach life and form judgments and make decisions are based on ancient rules and ancient uses. So there was a time when you were, if you were a hunter-gatherer uh, and you were finding, you know, you were living off of berries or, or living off of, you know, small animals that you can catch, every, any time that you got food and ate it, you needed to maximize the energy that you got from those berries or got from that rabbit, meaning if you caught a rabbit or you got some berries and you started eating and you had energy, you needed to go out and hunt some more or build something or do whatever or travel to the next place. Whatever you needed to do, you couldn't sleep on it. You had to remember what you ate. You had to remember that you needed to maximize that, that resource. So these days, for most people in Western industrialized societies, those pressures aren't quite as severe, but we still have the instinct to remember what we've already invested. So, for example, it's the reason why when I give lectures around the country, I'll often end up getting into discussions with lawyers about their careers. And lawyers, as you probably know and certainly could guess, when you take surveys of different professions, they're among the least happy. And whenever I talk to lawyers and I ask them, well, if you're so unhappy, you're educated, you're bright, you have lots of connections, you have lots of experience, why don't you just get a new career? They always tell me two things, two numbers. They tell me how much they paid for law school, and they tell me how long they've been working as a lawyer. And what I always tell them, Jordan, is, you know, you're not going to get your $75,000 or 10 miserable years back by being miserable for 25 more years. <laughs> but people tend to, they want to justify their cost of law school. They want to justify the years they've been working. It's the same reason why people stay in a bad movie. Well, I'm already halfway through. Or they keep reading a bad book. Well, I'm already halfway through. Or sometimes, as you know, Jordan, it's, some, it's sometimes the reason why people might stay in a bad marriage. Well, I've already put right. in so much time. And what I always tell people is, it's good to be loyal. It's good to be aware of what you've spent. But you need to think, what is happening going forward? So, for example, um, you know, my, my mom, when she was, uh, she was retired, my dad had died, she was thinking of selling her house that she lived in for a long time, and she had, she had paid a certain amount for the house, and then all the neighbors uh, around, that, around, around the, you know, uh, her house had been selling before the crash, and my mom had this idea in her head. She had anchored, which is another, another bias. She had anchored on a particular amount of money that she wanted to sell the house for and also what she had invested in it, 
And then as the, as the, as the economy started to tank, the price that she kept getting offered for the house fell lower and lower. And my mom couldn't get past the sunk cost that she put in, all the work that she'd invested, all the money that she put in. And I kept telling her, Mom, if you keep going, you're going to lose even more money. It doesn't matter how much money you put in. It matters now how much you can get out going forward. And when I finally got my mom to recognize that, to sort of see what she was doing, she was able to sell and move on. By the way, it kept falling. By the time yeah, other people on the block sold, they, had, they were selling for $100,000 less than my mom had. Yeah, a lot of people out. are stuck in the, in the past and not the current market. That was happening when the housing market in general was falling, is a lot of people didn't want to sell and are still underwater. <laughs> and they never exactly. able to recover and their money. And it's the same thing with, you know, you, I invested money in a particular stock or in a particular bond, and now it's for less. Either it's worth what it's worth now or it's not, and it may be that you think it's worth more, right? Warren Buffett will tell you if you buy something and the next day it sells for less, you should buy more of it unless something fundamental has changed. But in general, people can get stuck on their past investments and not move forward. What counts is what's going to happen in the future, not what you've invested already, because either way, you're not getting that money back. It's already been spent. Maybe you'll get new money going forward, but whatever you get going forward is going to be based on the future, not on what you invested previously. It's a, it's a thing I like to tell people because it not only affects their financial decisions, but it affects their life decisions in general. The past is the past, and there's a reason why there's an aphorism about that, right? There's a re- with all of these kinds of advice and all of this behavioral economic stuff that I talk about, it's very much in our common sense wisdom, because even before these psychologists recognized or codified what these habits were, we kind of knew about it beforehand. The the loss aversion or the disposition effect that we talked about in the previous segment, this idea that people tend to be super uh, 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 fearful of losses, we know from the formula that in general, in order for somebody to take a risk, they almost want to have, they need twice the possibility of a gain for people to sort of feel comfortable, right? If I'm going to risk $100, and feel comfortable, I need to know that there's $200 profit potentially. Guess what? You ever heard the phrase, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush? Right. That's where, that's where it comes from. Long before these Israeli psychologists were winning the Nobel Prize, hundreds of years ago, people had a gut feeling that a bird in the hand was worth two in the bush. If I'm going to risk going out and you know hunting for birds, and, and I already have a bird in my cave, there better be a good chance that I can double my resources, otherwise it's not worth it. So this is common sense, but it's important to be reminded of it. You have a chapter called Emotional Baggage. Um, we've talked about it a little bit, but what are some other examples of emotional baggage that people attach to money, making them uh, make bad financial decisions? Well, you know, or uh, it's like, you know, people tend to when they're literally it's about um, we, this is a chapter that we added completely in the new version when, when we first wrote the book. And I, I have a co-author. I wrote it with a guy named Tom Gilovich, who's one of the titans of the field. He's a professor of psychology at Cornell. Um, and when we first wrote the book, we didn't even include this, but in the, in the past 15 years, there was a lot of uh, research done about this. It's basically the idea that it's what you were saying earlier, that sometimes just our emotional state can get the better of us. So, for example, when people are feeling, and this is, again, stuff that's very, that's very obvious as soon as you hear it, but when people are feeling down or depressed, they can they make entirely different decisions than when they're feeling neutral or positive. And what's interesting about that is not so much, hey, if you're depressed, don't go shopping because you'll try to buy your way out of it. I think everybody knows that. But oftentimes, like, even cold weather or warm weather, even uh, a cold room or a warm room, 
even being told by um, by salespeople that you look especially nice today, or even having just sort of a positive or warm emotional experience when you're shopping, can can make you more likely to spend. If you go into stores this and during the holiday season, you'll notice that they're a little bit warmer, and you might think it's because well, it's cold outside, so they don't have the heat right. That's actually not why. They, we've learned now that when people feel warmer and more likely and more comfortable, they're more likely to be freer with their money because they're not as anxious about staying warm. And even though that's a silly idea because it's not like we live in a cave and we have to worry about firewood, but, <laughs> but our brains do. When our brains feel warmth and they feel like we're all safe, they're going to be less concerned about the firewood in the back of the cave or, in this case, the money and the deep in their wallet. We're, you know, our brain treats resources the same, and we're going to be that much more likely to be loose with our money. So how should you counteract that? I mean, should you kind of consciously say, it's too hot in here, they're trying to get me to spend money, I shouldn't do that? I mean, how can you counteract all these well, forces a, to make you want to spend more? A great, a great, you know, it's the reason, and you, as soon as you, if you convince people to do this, it, it solves the problem for them, which is don't go and, you know, know what you're going to spend before you get to the store. Know what you're going to spend before you go online. Literally write down a number, and you should, and if you just be, you know, you can say I'm going to spend $1,000 on Christmas gifts, and it doesn't matter how warm the store is, as long as you aim for that number and keep yourself within that number, you're, you'll, you'll, you can come back whatever influences that you're feeling when you're shopping, wherever you're shopping. The problem is that people, you know, don't take the time to be just at that level of discipline to their shopping, and then they go to the store, and by the time they're done, especially if they're using credit cards, because credit cards because of mental accounting, which we've discussed before, credit cards feel like fake money to people, and they, and because the, you don't have to pay it back for a while, people will spend it more freely. And so you think you only have $1,000 to spend on gifts or 500 or 5000 and the next thing you know, you're spending, you know, 1500 or 700 or 6000 So sometimes just putting yourself, giving yourself little clues to remind yourself that you're not a completely emotional being, that you have a plan, makes the world a difference. It doesn't work for everybody, but it helps enough people that it's worth recommending. And controlling the impulse. You have something where you say, don't just do something, stand there. It's kind of the opposite of what people would normally think. Exactly. I always like to, you know, on issues where I'm worried about something, I like to go with a buddy. I'll, I'll go with a friend or a pal or a girlfriend, whatever the case may be, and I'll say, you know, if I'm going to buy something, just, you know, ask me three times if I really think I'll need it and make me explain why. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, just just somebody, just even somebody reminding me that I didn't want to be impulsive. It doesn't even matter. I'll be like, "Oh yeah, I told you to ask me that because I sometimes get impulsive." Is this a case of impulsivity? Well, <laughs> probably yes. Well, you know what? I'm going to mark it. I'm going to take a picture of it with my phone. And if tomorrow I still want it, then I can let myself buy it. Guess how many times I end up buying it? I would say about one third of the time. Sometimes I know what I want, and the next day I still want it. But about two thirds of the time, it turns out that. Eh, it was just the emotions of that moment. We it's don't the impulse, realize how yeah. much we're we don't realize how much we're we're influenced by the chemicals in our brain. Except that we know that because it's why some of us don't smoke or some of us don't drink because we know, hey, if I start smoking, I'm going to smoke a lot. Well, our brains are our brains, and they respond to sensory uh, inputs of all kinds. And if we don't, are, if we aren't aware of it, then we're going to fall victim to them. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Gary Belsky. His book is called Why Smart Money, Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes and How to Correct Them. Uh, his website is elandroadpartners.com. You can certainly get the book at amazon.com. We'll be back after this. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus Drug Discount Card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies, but 9 out of 10 pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word TALK RADIO to 96362. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Gary Belsky. His book is called Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes. You can get it at Amazon.com. His website is elandroadpartners.com. Welcome back to the show, Gary. Oh, I'm uh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, it, it, it's it's fun to talk to you. It's uh, you know I, I think some of the people listening know that you know you and I worked together for about five or six years when we were both at Money Magazine in the uh, in the early nineties. Absolutely, you bet. Um, now you were saying that uh, when you bring somebody along to kind of stop your impulse buying, that's where people can kind of be a good check on you. But on the opposite side, uh, there are people that can lead you astray, both in investing and spending and so on. What are some things people should watch out for, and what are some of those psychological traps uh, in getting people to lead you astray? Well, exactly. We talk about, in the book, we spend a lot of time with something called the herd mentality or herd investing. You know, the, the, the basic, and, and as soon as I, I mention it, people will understand it, but we'll, it, it's worth exploring because you can kind of figure out ways to not fall victim to it. But decision-making is hard. Life is hard. There's a lot of decisions they have to make every day. But depending on who you ask, we, depending on the people, who you ask among the people who study decision-making, we have to make several thousand to tens of thousands of decisions every day. Some of them are conscious, some of them are non-conscious, but it's hard. And so the, the brain on a non-conscious level uses lots of different tricks to make decision-making easier. Um, you know, because if we didn't have these tricks, we'd never get out of bed for as, you know, if we had to go over every decision and think whether or not it makes sense. So one of the biggest uh, rules of thumb, one of the biggest tricks we use is what are the other humans doing, right? If you, uh, if you look at the way we interact every day, the way we go through life, a big clue is, well, if everybody else is walking across that bridge and they don't seem to be afraid of the river beneath it, I guess I can be pretty safe too. So following the crowd is a very, very good strategy for making decisions. The problem is sometimes the crowd gets all hot and bothered, and we tend to follow it too closely. So the biggest example, I'm sure you're thinking about this, is the stock market, right? If you can decide that 
you like a stock and you've done a lot of research or you like a mutual fund and you've done a lot of research or somebody you respect recommends it. And then if the next day the stock price starts to fall, a lot of people will get panicked and they will sell that stock. And I always give this example, well, what would happen if you bought a minivan for $30,000? And then the next day you started hearing that other people are selling their minivan, the same minivan, they're selling it for $25,000 or $20,000 or $10,000. And then somebody came to you and offered you $5,000 for the minivan you just bought for $30,000. Would you sell it to them? You'd look at them like they were crazy. And yet in the stock market, that happens all the time. And what people don't realize is, is that, the stock market, the bond market, things like that, they're very much affected by emotions and by the last person to raise their hand and vote. And that's a good example of the herd mentality. If you have a long-term strategy for what you're doing with your investing, you shouldn't even be paying attention to what the herd is saying, except maybe once every three months or every six months or every year. But the temptation for people is to follow the crowd because the crowd generally knows what it's doing. The problem is the crowd knows what it's doing when it's about traffic or when it's about what good restaurants to eat at or when it's about, you know, what bands to listen to or what music to buy. The problem is uh, the crowd often doesn't know what your investing needs are or what your insurance needs are or what your, you know, automobile needs are. Just because something is hot, just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean it's good to do. In fact, it may mean the opposite. Warren Buffett always says, be greedy when everybody is fearful, and be fearful when everybody is greedy. It's important to say what's good for me, not what's good for the crowd, but not what is the crowd doing. So you should be, is the advice you should be an active contrarian and for the most part try to do the opposite of what the crowd's doing? You should be an active contrarian in the short term, and you should be a consensus follower in the long term, right? So, but I mean real long term. So people in general... Jordan, as you know, a lot of people are too risk-averse when it comes to stocks. Too many people still don't understand that stocks in the long run are the best investment possible for people who are not able to spend their life studying investments. And the consensus opinion about stocks, the decades-long opinion is stocks are the best investments. So you should follow that. You should not – don't outthink the road sign. Follow all the great investors, everybody who got rich, most of the people who got rich in, in the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century did it through equities. But in the short term, at any given moment, keep the, 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 the herd, the crowd can get very nervous and they can run away from stocks. And that's where you should be an active contrarian. If you're hearing about the stock market going to hell in a handbasket on TV, or if you're reading about it on, on a website or in a magazine, that's almost assuredly a sign to call somebody you trust, call your advisor, go back, read on the web, do whatever you need to do, because you should be saying, when everybody starts stampeding, I should at least step aside for a second, because I need to catch my breath and think what's good for me for the long term. The short term is where people get into trouble. So psychologically, how would you do it? Let's put you back. Uh, we're in September 2008. Uh, Lehman Brothers has just gone down. Uh, AIG just went down. GM just went bankrupt. Merrill Lynch was just taken over. It looks like the world's coming to an end. The markets are falling 700 points a day. And so I'm going to make Gary the active contrarian here. All this news is cascading at you. How do you emotionally deal with it and say this is a great time to buy? Um, what I tell myself is uh, what do I – well, first of all, 
I do, what I tell myself, first of all, is I'm mostly invested in index funds. I'm mostly invested in the stock market in general. And so I'm not supposed to be making decisions today or tomorrow. I'm not good enough to do that. Uh, I either have a financial advisor or I'm investing with people in a mutual fund who know what they're doing. And so what am I paying them for if I'm, if I'm not going to trust them when, the, when all hell breaks loose? It amazes me, right? People invest, they use a financial advisor, or they invest in mutual funds in which, to some extent, you're paying for financial advice. And then when uh, the dirt hits the fan, to be uh, family-friendly, everybody decides, I have to start making decisions myself. The thing I would tell people is, I remember what Gary Belsky said in the future, which is to breathe through my nose and take some time and think, has this ever happened before? Has, you know, has the, has the stock market ever taking a tumble like this, and then what happens afterwards? And what I would look at is, wait, this happens all the time. And the smart people, the ones who get rich, are the ones who bought when everybody else was selling, including, you know, people like Warren Buffett and Sir John Templeton and Peter Lynch. All of the people I know who are famous stockpickers, they were able to resist the crowd and do the opposite in the short term. So I'm going to I'm gonna I'm gonna make a bet with smart money, and I'm gonna I'm gonna if not I'm gonna start putting a little bit more cash into the market. But more importantly, I'm not gonna take all my money out because that's a sure recipe to you know to buy high and sell low. I don't want to do that. That's what suckers do. Yeah, it's always easy uh, emotionally to buy high and sell low. You just don't make a lot of money that way for sure. Exactly, and, it's, and over time you start to look back and go, "How did everybody else get rich and I didn't?" It, and, and everybody else didn't get rich, but the people who got rich, who you notice more, did it because they bought low and sold high. There's a reason why. Uh, there's a reason why they did as well as they did. It's because they had the discipline or the luck to not have to pay attention to those short-term uh, ups and downs. In about a minute or so we have left, why don't you kind of give an overall view of what a difference in people's lives it'll make to listen to the kind of advice you're giving here compared to what they're doing now? Well, you know, one of the biggest things that people suffer from is something called regret aversion. People are always afraid uh, of not making mistakes, but how they'll feel when they make mistakes, which is different. And one of the things I always tell people is that the more you know, you're not going to cure your, you're not going to cure every every financial misstep you make. You're not going to eliminate uh, every error that you make. But the more you understand about your own decision making with all resources, money, time, effort, emotion, the better armed you are to make one or two fixes that could make the world a difference. But more than just making the world a difference, it'll make you feel better about your own decision making process. What people always you know, what people forget is that the best decision-makers in the world get it right half the time and wrong half the time, and the worst decision-makers in the world get it wrong half the time and right half the time. Basically, everybody makes the same amount of mistakes, and everybody makes the same percentage of successes, and it's how you deal with them. And the way to deal with them is to be informed about your humanity and to be able to smartly fix one or two problems that could sort of make the world a difference played out over years. And that's what you're trying to do. And that's what our book is about, and I think that's the reason why it's been as successful as it's been. I think it's the reason why people hire me to speak. I think it's the reason why people like this field so much, because it can really help you live a happier life, which honestly is the whole point. Terrific. Thanks so much. My guest has been Gary Belsky. Uh, his uh, book is called Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes and How to Correct Them, Lessons from the Life-Changing Science of Behavioral Economics. Uh, you can get it at Amazon.com. If you want to contact Gary, his uh, uh, website is elondroadpartners.com. Thanks so much for being a guest. It was really fascinating, Gary. Thank you, Jordan. Good to talk with you.
Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.